Uh, but it's great to follow on tonight from Bruce's message last week on uh, the, the father who provides for his beloved children. I love the way he made reference to one of our mutual friends. God is in a good mood, he used to say to us all the time. Um, and Colin, our senior leader, has been talking about so much uh, the gospel and the power of the gospel to touch every life. And really those two points, the goodness of God and this message of the gospel frame very much this message of encouragement that I want to bring to you tonight. I want to take you through four stages. Will you be an encourager? What does an encourager look like? Encourage you some, and then dream about what will happen as you begin to step into your ministry of encouragement. But let's begin with prayer. Father, we want to thank you so much for your presence. Lord, you've graced us so many times and once again here tonight by your spirit. Lord, we thank you that you delight to be with your people. We ask tonight, let the entrance of your word bring light. Let us as Chris is praying, be drawn ever increasingly to be the image of your son, Jesus. Let us be open to deep heart transformation. Let us be willing to forsake the flesh and to embrace the life of the spirit in Jesus' name. Encouragement, it comes from two French words, en courage, the idea being courage on the inside of you. And the ministry of encouragement is about putting courage on the inside of us. You can face the harshest trial in life with courage in your life because you believe that there is a hope, there is a future, there is something that God has in store for you. And it's a time for us as a church where we arise to courageous leadership that we would start to stand up and proclaim the great message of reconciliation and hope that is available in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that we would go into the world to proclaim that message, not just have nice sermons in church buildings, but be a people that carry the gospel of Jesus Christ everywhere that we go. And maybe you're here tonight, maybe you uh, need some encouragement, but maybe you also have an aspirational desire to be an encourager. And it's encouragers that can literally change lives. For me, the reason I'm preaching this message tonight is because I aspire to be an encourager and I've got a long way to go, so I'm preaching to myself as much as I'm preaching to you. But when we start to work and operate with the Spirit, encouragement is effectively taking the Word of God and seeing the Word of God do the heavy lifting in terms of transforming someone's life so that they can live for the glory of God. We know that words used in gossip and slander can destroy a life. But opposite to that, words can be used to make someone's life. If you encourage someone on purpose, you can and will release the plan of God for their life. And I want to lead us to a place where we're asking this question of ourselves daily. What can I say and do and be to encourage a discouraged generation? What can I do to reach out and hope with people that right now have no hope. Can I imagine what sort of people will come to start living and leading for Jesus? Will you be an encourager? There are so many figures in the Bible, so many figures in the Old and New Testament that we can draw great revelation from their lifestyle. Their lifestyle reveal principles of God. There's the greats, there's David and Abraham, Stephen, Moses, Peter, Paul, incredible men. And there's incredible women, Mary, Mary, and Mary, Priscilla, Phoebe, Deborah, the Samaritan woman, the first great evangelist, 
the woman who anointed the feet of Jesus Christ for his burial, Esther, the great role she had to play in the Old Testament. But for tonight, I want to focus in on Joseph. Now, we all know that Joseph had this incredible cloak. It was almost like a prophetic mantle. When his brothers looked at him, all they could see was this cloak. And Joseph was a man of huge courage. He walked into a situation like no one else did, separated from his people, sent out from his land, called to a prophetic life that would help the people of God in untold ways. We're just going to spend a few moments unpacking his life. Joseph was a wealthy man, a huge giver, such a big giver that in fact he set a standard for giving, so much so that others tried to imitate him in his generosity. He pioneered the first great missionary works outside of the promised land and trained up apostolic leaders, identifying and releasing key leaders into their ministry. Joseph is almost single-handedly responsible for ensuring that the early community of believers were united as one church. He was a man of vision and great values, carried a big heart and was skilled in seeing the gift of God in people and communicating in such ways to enable this. He helped men of passion like Paul and the weak-hearted like John Mark to pursue a life of ministry in God. Some of you are looking a little bit confused because you're wondering if I was talking about Joseph out of the Old Testament or some new apocryphal gospel uh, that's not in the Scriptures. Acts 4.36, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, a Levite, a native of Cyprus sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And here in this verse, we have an introduction to this incredible man of God. Everything I said about him was true, including the piece about his cloak, the mantle, a prophetic mantle. Whenever people saw Joseph, they would identify him by this mantle, his anointing. If it had a color, it would be described as encouragement. Of all the incredible things that Joseph did, and they are a great range of things which we're going to unpack, he was identified by his brothers with one attribute, the one name by which everyone called him, Barnabas, which is translated the son of encouragement. Now this great man, for many of us, is almost like a friendly Uncle Joe. You know, the guy that's always encouraging, but he's in the background, he sort of plays the funny role, tells the jokes, encourages you when you feel down. But in some way, we have made a fatal error of ignoring him when we focus on the great heroes like Peter, like Stephen, like Paul, like Timothy. But the truth is that his, this prophetic giant's shadow falls nearly behind everything that happens in the New Testament church and the, specifically the missional church throughout the book of Acts. Barnabas is an Aramaic name. It stems from the bringing together of two words, Bar, the sun, and Napa, or prophecy or exaltation. Now, this is to describe something profound about the person. Sometimes we might think of him as the ultimate Joe Sandals, the one who would walk around with sandals and socks, super nice Barnabas, that kind of uh, disciple. But really, when we take those kind of thoughts and set them aside and start to see Barnabas with a spiritual perspective. We see the profound nature that this man had cultivated in Christ. When we say son of, 
prophecy or exhortation, we are speaking of someone who is raised at the knee of, he learned at, he grew by, he cultivated a character at the place of prophecy and exhortation or encouragement, the words of God that spoke forth life. He himself, when others saw him, said, you know what, you are so much like your father in that you encourage people. And through his life, we begin to see something of what real encouragement looks like. And we really need more encouragers in the world today. Because when Barnabas spoke, he spoke words that were considered as though they were prophecy. They were words of life. They were words which called forth destiny and called forth uh, ministries and called forth churches and called forth situations which we today would love to be participating in as we position ourselves for this move of God. Let me ask you a question before we go any further. They called Barnabas Barnabas because that's what they saw. What would they call you? What do you aspire to be? What do you want to grow to be as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Now, it didn't just happen to Barnabas. Barnabas took a decision one at a time. His character was carefully cultivated with his movements towards Christ. And I want to look at three intentional decisions which uh, reflect three, uh, three values or qualities which he lived by, sacrifice, unity, and empowering others. The first verse that we read, the Acts 4 verse, is the story of um, Barnabas's appearance in the New Testament. He is living in Cyprus. He's heard something of the gospel, and he sold his land and brought it to the Jerusalem church and laid it at the feet of the apostles in its entirety. Do you know that Barnabas's example of giving so radically was what inspired Ananias and Sapphira? Where they fell short was that they pretended that they were giving radically, but they were withholding some for themselves. But Barnabas was so sincere about the Lord that he gave everything. And for me, this is very much the key to his ministry. At the moment which he gave away all that he had, he was simply saying this, my life is no longer about me. My life is about Jesus and his church. And my future is now in the hands of the body of Christ. He didn't come for control. He didn't come trying to gain a position. He didn't tr come trying to elevate himself. He came serving. He understood that this was his time to give today. If you live as though tomorrow is the day, it will always be tomorrow and you'll miss it. Tomorrow I'm going to get serious about God. Tomorrow I'm going to start responding to the call. Tomorrow I'm going to get sacrificial in my giving. Tomorrow I'm going to lay down my future and trust it to the hands of God. Today is the day. And from this place where he understood that the kingdom of God was worth everything, he began to see God open up door after door after door through which he was given an opportunity to step through and walk out this lifestyle of being an encourager. One of the first places we see him after this uh, brief introduction is with Paul. Acts 9, 26 through 31, Paul has just got radically saved on the road to Damascus, but he's been rejected by the church in Jerusalem. What does Barnabas do? He goes and he finds Paul and he brings them to the church and he insists on introducing them to the disciples. Now, when you think about it, this required incredible negotiation. 
Who did Joseph have to uh, negotiate with? He was dealing with rough fishermen, tax collectors, people who were very afraid of Paul because Paul had been responsible for people dying, possibly their friends, family, loved ones. Is he now just trying to deceive us so he can infiltrate us and destroy us from the inside? And yet Barnabas was able to negotiate this shift of hatred from the disciples into loving union over a period of time. Makes me think, an encourager is someone who gets alongside another and offers their greatest support. Even those who you might determine as not worthy of support, will you advocate for them? But I believe that this bold negotiation came out of a deeper set of values that rested in Barnabas's heart, that the kingdom of God offers us an opportunity to love people so radically. And he was seeing the world's way all over this. People offended and trying to kick out somebody who they did have a reason to be afraid of in the beginning. But now with this shift that had happened in his life because of the kingdom of God, he was now worthy of their love and commitment from both sides to this new relationship in the ministry. And this value of unity, the unity of the brethren, was worth him fighting for. Now, if you think about it, it's quite profound because Paul was getting direct revelation. He was hearing directly from Jesus. He was getting taught directly by Jesus. And he could quite easily have just turned around and said, you know what, Jerusalem church, you've shunned me, bless you. But Jesus is calling me and I'm going to go off and I'm going to follow and be obedient to Christ. But Barnabas understood something important, that although that was true, the division would have brought dishonor to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he went in and he got right in the middle of that and he brought two, almost, well, one willing, the other's not so willing, parties together so that they could learn what it was to love one another and walk in genuine unity as the kingdom of God makes possible. I wonder if this is where Paul caught the seed of 1 Corinthians 13. You can give great words of knowledge. You can prophesy. You can give your body to be burned. But if you do all these things without love, without a commitment to love, all of that doesn't matter. I wonder if it was burned in him. He understood from this interaction, this intervention by Barnabas that, no, he couldn't just go off and be a great minister if undergirding all that he was was not love or the fruit of the Spirit. So much so, actually, that Paul took lead from this. Paul, later on, begins to argue for the unity of the Spirit. When he is in uh, writing the book of Galatians, he writes frequently about how he went time and again to Jerusalem to make sure there was alignment between him and the church in Jerusalem. Because the initial work that Barnabas had done in his life helped him know how important it was to stay united with the Jerusalem church. But that same commitment, that same value for love and unity is also, curiously, a a value which led to separation, uh, a value which led to a great conflict. Uh, In Acts 13, we see uh, Barnabas and Paul going out on a, a mission together, the first great missionary journey. Um, And they have a relatively great time, but there's one incident, uh, an an incident that uh, wounds Paul. John Mark is traveling with them, and somewhere along the journey, he loses heart. 
He gets discouraged. He abandons them on the missionary journey. We don't know if there's something more severe than that, but the, the scripture just lets us know that he left them behind. And when it comes time for missionary journey number two in Acts 15, Barnabas wants John Mark to come with, but Paul is like, no, I don't want anything to do with him. I can't be out there on the mission field with somebody who's not going to have my back. I can't be out there on the mission field with somebody who's going to get faint-hearted and run on home to mummy. I can't do that. This is serious stuff. We're trying to plant churches. We're trying to win the lost. I need people who are serious. But Barnabas understood that there was something about John Mark. And Barnabas shows us here that you can love God, love people, and hold to your principles. Now, you might think it was absolutely crazy that he argued with Paul. I often wonder, like, Barnabas, don't you know who Paul, Paul is like, the apostle that we all like rave about today? Who were you to argue with Paul? Who were you to know that John Mark was someone that you should leave Paul with? Actually, this is a sacrificial aspect of Barnabas's walk, that his commitment to these values lost him great ministry opportunities. He was traveling with Paul, and suddenly he's not traveling with Paul. Suddenly he's traveling with the guy who legged it, who ran away from Paul. Suddenly he's starting a second mission on his own, going back to Cyprus, but without the glory of these great second missionary stories that we hear. But you see, the thing is, without uh, Barnabas's ministry, you can take the gospel of Mark and you can throw it away. Actually, many people believe that the gospel of Mark was the source text or one of the source texts for uh, Matthew and Luke. A lot of people believe that. You could take that gospel and throw it away. Because Mark, John Mark, is the same Mark that we believe wrote the Gospel of Mark. Without Barnabas's intervention, we would have lost a whole heap of great scripture. Barnabas saw potential that the great Paul couldn't see. I wonder if this is another area where Paul caught a revelation of the unity of the brethren. Actually, Barnabas's commitment to John Mark was so profound that Paul later changes his mind. In 2 Timothy 4.11, it says, and send to me John Mark, who is also useful to me for ministry. Paul was wrong on John Mark, or at least it was Barnabas's ministry to John Mark, which helped bring that reconciliation. So he was a radical giver, he valued unity, he was sacrificial, but he was also incredibly humble. Humility is essential for someone who really wants to grow in God. I think Barnabas wouldn't mind being behind the scenes a little bit in the, gospel of, uh, in the book of Acts. Because we see here in Acts 13, 13, during that same first missionary journey, when him and Paul set off, it was Barnabas and Saul, the preeminent one, the mission leader, was always named first. And it was during a conflict between Paul and Elymas, the magician who had the local proconsul under a spell in Cyprus, and the causing of blindness to come upon Elymas, that suddenly you see a shift. You see the name swap. It's no longer Barnabas and Saul, it's Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas was his mentor. And suddenly, 
Barnabas is his assistant. His humility didn't require him to be number one. His humility said, the right person needs to be leading the missions. And it's the blessing of the gifts and talents of Barnabas that not only made John Mark possible, but also made Paul possible. God has a plan for every one of you, even if you are the only one who will see it in somebody else. People will show you their best if you let them, but will you be the type of leader that will empower them to enter that calling? Most people, when you ask them, what kind of a leader do you want to be? They'll say, I want to be Paul. But do you see the power of being Barnabas? Barnabas is by no means less. God sees to it that every single seed that he sows reaps a harvest, so much so that some of Paul's greatest teachings, yes, we know inspired by the Spirit, yes, Jesus was talking to him directly, but also he was seeing it modeled through his mentor, Barnabas. Do we look for the next great leader in the kingdom of God in the right places? Maybe you look amongst those you think are disqualified. Paul was a church destroyer, or a, uh, yeah, he was a church destroyer, or at least pulling apart the community of believers. But Barnabas saw someone with great potential. We all need encouragement, but the world in which we live is very light on encouragement. We don't have many encouragers around us. We don't have people that are seeking to lift us. Uh, you know, what if I were to say to you today, if I were to able to sit down, sit down next to you and just hang out for you, with you for a little bit, and just to look you in the eye and say, you know what? You look good today. You look good today. Uh, you might. <laughs> That's nice. You know, but you're the only person to say anything like that for me, to me for years because for the last five years, people have been telling me I've put on too much weight. People have been telling me that I'm not looking after my hair. All of these things. Oh. Hey, hey. I'm talking about you lot, not me. But you see, the way that the world operates in, in, in regards to encouragement is it's very transactional and it's very external. There's a focus on looking at what's obvious. And sometimes it's nice to uh, receive a compliment. Sometimes it's flattery, but sometimes it's free. It's a genuine word of encouragement. But we also see the nature of that encouragement if it's not reciprocated. See, the dark heart of offense begins to manifest if you don't encourage me back in like turn to how I've encouraged you. Or some have lived in an environment that is so lacking in encouragement that you've become a demolition expert with regard to your words rather than an encourager. You know how to slice and dice someone's self-esteem before they've even opened their mouth. Or we think about Dutch courage. You know, getting the, the strength to do something by having a few drinks. You know, if I have a few drinks, I'll be crazy enough to try this or bold enough to go speak to that person or free enough to just go dance on the dance floor and do my thing. Or maybe you've got those kinds of friends who uh, encourage you uh, 
to do things, but they encourage you to do things that they would never do themselves. And they go, yeah, yeah, you go for it, you go for it. And then you're running off and you're just like, <laughs> poor guy. Maybe you've got those kind of friends or the encouragers who give well-meaning advice. Now I've sat in restaurants or cafes where you've just heard people talking about their relationship status and then this type of encouragement, you don't need that person, get them out of your life. You're much better off without them, you can, you can do it. And you see the other person not encouraged, you see them deflated. You see them think, well, actually that's someone that I love, that's actually someone that I value. I don't want to kick them out of my life for no reason. Or you see the false spirituality that we dress up as discernment and pretend it's encouragement when really it's judgment. It's uh, not a wise man or woman that can see the obvious. And this is what worldly encouragement is like. What do you see on the outside? What's obvious? Any fool can see the obvious. And the problem is when you start digging in the dirt of someone's life, you're digging down for more and more dirt and more and more dirt, except you've missed that growing past your tree is a wonderful branch and over your head is a wonderful tree of that person's life, but you're just too big, busy trying to dig the dirt on them. Judgment is false spirituality. If you crave discernment, if you want to walk in genuine encouragement, start with your heart. But I don't just mean lead from your heart and, you know, be someone that speaks out of the abundance of your heart. No, start with your heart and make sure that it's aligned to truth. Make sure that it's aligned to the Word of God and not your feelings. Sometimes you might encourage only because you're having a good day. But God calls us to encourage because it's the truth of His Word. And I want to just spend a few moments unpacking three encouraging truths from the scripture to lift you today. What would encouragement look like in your life? If I was to come and sit next to you, if a great minister was to come and sit next to you and you were to just say, just encourage me today, what would it look like? Now, of course, it's nice for them to tell you that you look good. Some good affirmations needed. But the much more important truths are these. Number one, that you are deeply loved in Christ. You are deeply loved in Christ. God has made us accepted in the beloved, through whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. That's in Ephesians 1. When you put your faith in the faithfulness of Christ, you step into the experience of God's love for you. See, Jesus was faithful to the call of God for His life here on the earth. He walked in holiness. He went to the cross. He died upon that cross for you and for me. And the most profound thing of all is that he was raised from the dead by the power of God. But he was faithful all the way through that process. When we put our faith in what Jesus did on the cross, we suddenly begin to experience that faithfulness that was also directed towards God, 
directed towards you. The way that Paul puts this in Romans is he says that there is nothing that can separate you from God's love. Whether you're in heaven, hell, uh, you're facing all kinds of challenges around you, powers and principalities are coming after you, any kind of fear, any kind of angelic being, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Every one of you, every one of you deeply loved in Christ. Second is this, that you are now a beloved son or daughter of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He has given you his righteousness. What that means is when he sees you, he sees the one who saved you. When he sees you and looks at you, he sees the Christ who died for you and gave his blood for you, his blood applied to you so much so that you have the robes of righteousness. Remember how I was talking about Barnabas having this mantle of encouragement. Well, you have a robe of righteousness that's bought for you by the blood of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. That's Christ. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Whoever you are, whatever background you've come from, as Artie was saying this morning, it doesn't matter whether you're from Ghana, or from Hong Kong. Artie, great stuff comes out of Hong Kong. All the technology that you use is... Uh, <laughs> it doesn't matter about all of those things. It matters that God has adopted you as his child. Oh, you don't know who you're talking to, Gabriel. You know, I'm not the child that you adopt. I'm the kind of child that you make sure you don't adopt. I'm the kind of child that you make sure that uh, they don't even get onto the foster home list because I've done so much crazy stuff in my life and I've been here and I've been there and I've done this and I've done that. Whoever you are, it's the glory of God's grace to deliver you from or free you from the sin that controls you, not to condemn you in them. And he does so by adopting you first to say, you are now my child. When you put your faith in the Christ who died upon the cross for you, God puts upon you his seal of sonship. You from then on are forever his child. And in the battle of sin, know that he is, with sin, know that he is able to save you to the uttermost. There is no pit that is too great that he can't draw you out and cleanse you and bring you into the fullness of life he intends for you. Hebrews 7.25 says this, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Ah, but Gabriel, you don't know the things that I'm faced with. You know, it's easy for you. you you've got people praying for you. You're a minister, da-da-da. But I'm always afflicted. I've always got the enemy on my back. I'm always facing these challenges, and I'm feeling like I can't get free. Except as part of that great package, what Jesus did on the cross and his adoption, there's something that powerful that happens to you. All of your sin, it says in Colossians 2.13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This is the important bit if you're afraid of the enemy. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them 
in Him. This new relationship that's made possible by you receiving the forgiveness that's uh, made available at the cross means that you enter a new place with God. He's now your Father, but it also means that every power and principality that torments you has been served notice. No rights. No rights of abode, no rights of attack, no rights of condemnation, no rights of uh, uh, seeking to bring you down into disrepute. You are no longer to walk in the fear of the enemy, but you are to walk in the fear of God, the one who has made this possible. When you feel pressed on every side, know that it's God to fear, not the enemy who's chasing you. And as Colin often says, turn around and stand your ground. Stand in this truth that the powers that would seek to afflict you have been publicly shamed because of what Jesus did on the cross. You need do no more than remind them of the cross of Jesus Christ. Sati said to us a few weeks ago, don't go chasing around the devil, don't go starting a fight with the devil, you don't need to. All you need to do is stand in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In him, you are more than an overcomer. So first, you are deeply loved. Second, you are righteous in God, so much so that you're now his children. Third, you are called by Almighty God. You're called according to a purpose. God has a plan for your life. Now, there's so many other calls going on in your life. There's the call for the adrenaline rush. There's the call for alcohol. There's a call for drugs. There's a call for control. There's a call to make money by any means possible. There's a call to compromise your integrity and cheat. There's a call to break your home by having an affair. There's a call to lie and deceive so that you can get ahead. But there's a call that is above every other call. There is a voice that speaks over your life above every other voice that speaks. When your friend gets on the phone and says, it's Friday night, say, I can't hear you. There's a bigger voice calling me tonight. It's the voice of the Lord God who says, I have a plan for you. I have a purpose for you. I have a destiny for you. And Paul put it like this in his response. I have not, I have not already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I could have come and sat with you tonight and spent a lot of time finding out about your gifts, finding out about your talents, finding out about how uh, God has given you something unique and every one of us carries something unique. And I could have then affirmed, affirmed that and lifted that and said, you know what, that's really a brilliant thing. You should use that to the glory of God, and you should. But these three truths are just some of the incredible truths that are made available for you in the gospel. That you're deeply loved, that you're adopted as a son or daughter of God, and that you are called by Almighty God to live in a way that would glorify Him. But you might be here today and saying, Gabriel, I, I'm not any of those things. I've come with a friend. I've come to hear what you Christians have to say. I've not come to know that as my own truth. I don't know that I'm loved by God. I don't know that I'm his child. I don't know that he has a plan for my life. 
Well, let me encourage you with these words. Let everything I've said so far this evening put courage on the inside of you to reach out by faith and say, Lord Jesus, I put my trust in your faithfulness. If you really could die for the prostitute and the tax collector and all those long lists of sins that Gabriel's been busy calling out all night, then you can save me. Won't you save me tonight, Lord? Won't you transform my life tonight, God? Every single one of you sitting here today is a testimony to what God can do when he stretches out his saving power. And you might be here sitting next to a testimony. You yourself might be a testimony in waiting. I want to encourage you tonight to do something simple. To take the courage that is welling up in your heart right now and has been welling up as I've been speaking and say, yes, Lord, tonight's the night. I've been running, I've been arguing, I've been procrastinating, I've been doing everything but the one thing I should be doing, seeking to live for you. And I want to invite you to pray a prayer with me, every Christian's going to pray it with me, but if you pray tonight this prayer for the first time and you mean it and you want to do something about the courage in your heart to live from these truths. I want to ask you to lift your hand when it comes to the right moment. All of us can pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that you had great courage when you went to the cross. You're being faithful to God, but you're also faithfully reaching out to me, hoping that I would respond in love. And today, Lord Jesus, I ask for the forgiveness that's made possible by your blood. Help me to have the courage to leave behind a life of sin. Help me to have the courage to follow you with all that I am. In Jesus' name. If we can just maintain that disposition. If you prayed that prayer tonight and you meant it, just a few seconds, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. It's a courageous act. But it's an important act. It's acknowledging to yourself and to everyone around that tonight is a night that you're willing to make that decision. So in three seconds, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. Two, one. Is there anyone here? Thank you, ma'am. Thank you, ma'am, so much. Anyone upstairs? Give me a big wave. Any further down here, I've seen two ladies, one here and one there in the center. Any others that say, I want to follow Christ Jesus tonight. I want to respond in courage to the great message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray for these two people. Father, thank you so much for this wonderful gift of life. Lord, we praise you for giving them the courage to respond to you tonight. We ask you that you would lift them into a new life with you. Wash them clean of their sin. Help them to boldly follow you. In Jesus' name. I haven't finished. That was just altar call time. Halfway into mission. You're not in a laughing mood tonight. So we looked at the et etymology in the English 
encourage, encourage. We looked at the Aramaic bar napa, the idea of being a son of prophecy or exhortation. I was reading this passage in the Greek. Thankfully, my master's is doing some good for my Greek reading. But it was really interesting when I read Acts 4.36. It was talking about the son of, and there's a word there that just jumped out at me as I'm sure it will jump out at you. Paraclesis. Any of you Greek scholars ever come across that word? Paraclesis. There's another word in John 14, verse 26. I will send to you the parakletos. Paraclesis, parakletos. There's only one letter difference. It relates to the genitive versus the nominative. One who has the one who is, possessing the one who is, or the subject of. But what I'm driving towards with this is this thing that just hit home to me. Barnabas was a son of encouragement or a son of paraclesis, the one who comforted, the one who consoles, the one who appeals, the one who encourages. That's the very description of the Holy Spirit, the counselor, the intercessor, the helper, the one who encourages and comforts the paracletos. In the New Testament, the, par the New Testament parakletos is used exclusively to describe the work of the Holy Spirit. When you talk here about Barnabas, talking about a son of, it's not a big stretch, it's a little bit of a stretch, but it's not a big stretch, a son of the Spirit, a son of the Spirit. So many people want to be led by God prophesy, tell the future, pull down governments with a prophetic word. Barnabas, as a son of the Spirit, spoke words of life to people, words that literally brought forth their ministry. So people loved being around him so much that they called him the son of encouragement because of the way that he lived his life to build people up in the things of God. In the same way that Barnabas is a son of the Spirit, we can all be children of the Spirit. Why? Because the Spirit of God dwells on the inside of you. And there is a fruit that is coming forth in your life as the Holy Spirit increasingly reigns in our way of life, thinking, our devotion, our heart attitude. Where our fundamental perspective is shifted from the negative to the potential that God sees in everybody because when a seed of the Word of God begins to operate in someone's life, there is nothing that can quench what that seed intends to produce. You can become a, an encourager that brings this kind of difference. But it's not just for you to be called Barnabas. It's for you to Go and search out the people that you can empower. Barnabas went and sought out Paul, the guy who was killing Christians. Who could you seek out? Who are the people that you've written off? Maybe they're backslidden in the faith right now. Maybe they are people that have been your worst critic and your worst enemy when it comes to the preaching of the gospel. Maybe there's someone in your family that you say, you know what, they are the outcast and no one is ever going to reach them. 
But what if you can mature in your ministry as a son of the Spirit, daughter of the Spirit, someone who brings encouragement to seek out those people to empower them? Loving God means that we are free to love all people. What can we do if we love them enough to speak words of life into them? And I believe that that's a key part of what we are expecting and believing God for in this pouring out of the Spirit, that the children of God, the children of the Spirit, would go and start to speak words of life into other children of the Spirit. That we would raise a generation of encouragers, people that know how to not just speak platitudes or nice empty Christian words, but to get under the sin and blow that sin out of that, li that life, to get under the rocks that seem to be blocking someone on their way journey towards God and obliterate them with words of encouragement, to be somebody that lifts, literally lifts a discouraged generation into all the potential that they have in God. We see this in Scripture de described as the turning of the hearts of fathers to children, children to fathers. We see the uh, Romans 8 passage, the earnest desire for creation to see the revealing of the sons of God. We know that that has eschatological importance, but it's also important for us today to see the children of God start to rise up as the bride of Christ. What about you? Of all the things that they could call you, what do you want to be known as? My hope is Barnabas. My hope is a child of the Spirit. My hope is that you would say, you know what? It will require sacrifice, it will require humility, it will require great love. It will require me to learn how to talk to people that I've written off because it's just so hard to talk to them. But at the end, you could be someone in Acts 29 and 30 and so on that had a ministry that was as impactful as Barnabas's. Maybe sitting behind. Maybe not the front character, but without whom the whole thing would have fallen down. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you, Lord, for the great truths of the gospel that encourage us, but also the great call that you have upon our lives. We thank you for great men like Barnabas that sprung out of the fertile soil of that early church, the kinds of people that you believed to see brought forth, and also the kinds of people you needed for the Pauls and the John Marks of this world to find their place in ministry. And Lord, we ask you tonight to begin a birth in our hearts, a great desire to be a people that serve others with words of encouragement, and more than words of encouragement, sacrifices of encouragement. It cost Barnabas to bring Paul to the disciples. It cost Barnabas to give up his beloved relationship with his mentee because he was too rash to accept John Mark's shortcomings. But Lord, ultimately we see his great ministry You've just felt the call of God tonight as we've been speaking. You felt the call of God. And you've not, not, not known what to do with your, your gift. You've tried at times to use your gift. You feel like people have looked down on you or even pushed you aside and 
dismissed it, but it's a gift from God nonetheless. We want to encourage you in that tonight. If you feel that God has been calling you, I want you to simply start to step out of your seats, start to come forward, start to respond. We're not going to have all the answers, but we want to pray with you. We want to lift you. You believe that God is saying, I have gifted you with who you are intentionally. Don't hide your light under a bushel. Don't shy away from, don't accept what other people have said about your failure. But listen to that voice, that call that is above every other call. Just in a few holy moments as we start of worship, if I can ask you to fill up the front. Also, the second area is that you've been thinking about someone. You know that they're called by God. You know that there is something that God wants to do through their life, but you've let the relationship go. They were going through a difficult time. They were being rude to you. They were being hurtful. And they are now a million miles. But you're able to take a first step. You are the Barnabas for them that is to go and find them, so to speak to go and bring them back, to go and try and reconnect them to the call of God that's on their life. We're just going to start a sing, waiting here for you once again, but I want you to start to respond to the Holy Spirit. It's not a pressure time, it's a you time. If you feel the courage to step out and say, God, I want to meet with you, come and start to fill out the front just now.